Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We'll discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of the Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm here today with Angela Vandenbroek. Angela is now an assistant professor of anthropology at Texas State University, where she's working on starting the Innovative Anthropology Lab, and it's uh, associated with a PhD program in applied anthropology, which is quite unique, and we're going to spend some time talking about. Um, But also, Angela has been a consultant for many years now, going back to about 2008, working in the design, branding, information technology space. She's volunteered and helped all kinds of organizations and committees throughout the anthropology community, from the Committee for the Anthropology of Science, Technology, Computing, to the, you know, helping a little bit with the Apply Clubs, uh, which is related to the Applied Anthropology Network under EASA in Europe. Uh, has been involved in medical anthropology quarterlies, all kinds of things. Uh, aside from that, probably worth mentioning that your dissertation looked at innovation as a concept and how it functioned within the Stockholm startup community. So, of course, you're interested in entrepreneurship and innovation, which is all very related to today. So, Angela, thanks for coming on. Would you mind sharing with everybody how you first got interested in anthropology? Sure. Uh, It's a long story. I actually fell in love with archaeology first. Uh, As a little kid, I loved it. Uh, Went to college to do archaeology, but as I'm an American, I was in a four-field anthropology school, and while I was there, sociocultural anthropology started speaking to me. (laughs) uh, But while I was at Grand Valley State University, I was a first-gen student, and so out of necessity, I ended up kind of doing uh, baby applied work. So I was working in all kinds of different fields trying to like make ends meet as a student. And so I was in retail and manufacturing. I did some substitute teaching and a bunch of other little things. But it was when I first started thinking about how I could use anthropology outside academics because I never really saw my a pathway to professorship as a kind of first-gen student. Um, and so I, one of the first things that happened is I was working for this company called Yonkers, which is now like a defunct retail brand. And uh, during an interview, I was in the department I was supposed to be working with, with the manager. And he was like, anthropology, what are you going to, what can you do for that? Why should I give you the job of that? And I think it was kind of like a throwaway question. Um, but in that moment, I was like, oh, well, I could probably use this. And I started looking around at the department and I was working in the pluses and petites department and they had filled their pluses department so the racks were all approximately two and a half feet apart (laughs) and then they had double stacked their petite department so that the tops were above the pants and I just remember looking around and saying well here's what I can help you with 
think about how human bodies move in space and how people feel about those bodies as they do. So if you're a particular petite person, do you want to be reminded that you're really short and you can't reach the tops on the racks? Or do you want, if you're a plus size woman, to feel uncomfortable squeezing sideways between racks? You know, this isn't going to make your customer happy. And if they're not happy, they're not going to want to purchase. And it was that kind of first moment when I was like, oh, I can actually do something with this. Um, but I wasn't totally on board yet, so I went to do a master's degree, again in archaeology. Um, but after my first semester, my advisor was just, she's like, you know, everything you want to do is sociocultural. This is clearly what inspires you, so go do it, try it out. And at the time, it was the height of the Iraq War, and I was uh, pretty active part of the activist community uh, fighting Islamophobia and things like that in the South where I was living, because uh, um, I went to Southern Mississippi for my master's. And so I got involved with a masjid and working and interviewing and taking oral histories of the women there and learning about how they navigated their social lives among the kind of Islamophobia that was prevalent at the time. And when I finished, uh, while I was finishing actually, I needed a job again because Again, money is necessary to live indoors and whatnot. So <laughs> I got a job working at LSU. And I had always kind of been a, a tinkerer online. I learned HTML and all of that in the 90s, like one of those fun kids, some elder millennials. <laughs> and so I got this job working for LSU libraries, managing all their websites. And um, uh, while I was there, I developed my skills as a web developer. So while I was there, I learned how to work with SQL databases and write uh, server-side scripting and how to do usability studies and how to do accessibility audits and all that kind of work. And I started to build a career around that, which is when I decided to go back to school for a PhD the first time to study technology and to study up and look at systems of power. And I didn't get in, <laughs> which I think is a story a lot of people don't ever tell is how difficult it can be to get into these programs. Um, talking to my students now who are applying and are terrified and it's sometimes it just doesn't fit. And so I went back into industry, and this is where I really kind of developed my applied uh, ethos as an anthropologist. So I worked for a two-county community college in North Carolina, and I got the job primarily because they were in a big state of transition, and they were trying to revamp the college and get enrollment up and really help out the community who had lost a lot of jobs uh, following the 2008 housing crisis. And so my job was to not just build them websites, but help them understand how people understood their relationship to the college through those web services. And so I did interviews and focus groups and all kinds of fun things like that, um, and revamped uh, their websites and that kind of thing. Um, and eventually I did end up going back for a PhD, but this time with a much stronger argument in my application because I had spent all this time in IT and I really wanted to ask questions that my employers weren't going to pay me to ask. <laughs> Things like, what is the nature of technology and innovation and why do we approach technologies the way we do? So I went back to school, uh, ended up working with Douglas Holmes at uh, Binghamton University and uh, did my dissertation in Stockholm, uh, which I went there originally to 
look at how Sweden promoted itself as an innovative country, primarily because it's easier to pitch working with stable government organizations to things like NSF and Wintergren and other grant funding agencies and to say, I want to work with this startup. They may not exist in three months. <laughs> so I went there, had the project planned, and the organization I was going to work through backed out at the last moment after I arrived. And so I had to reinvent the project. And so I turned to the startup community and uh, started going to entrepreneurial events and things like that and just asking people, what do you think an anthropologist needs to be paying attention to? And started redeveloping my research question from there. And really what I learned was that people wanted to know why their ambitions to really make the future this better place wasn't happening through the promise of entrepreneurship. Um, and so I worked with them to help them understand how the things they take for granted, the vocabulary they use are complicated, but have meaning that uh, drive their decisions in ways that are maybe counterproductive for what they're trying to achieve. So yeah, that's my story. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a lot in there, uh, as there <laughs> often is with most guests. Mm -hmm. So just let's step back a little bit and kind of go you know, somewhat sort of uh, sequentially here. So you have this tech interest, you, you know, you go to school for anthropology, but you have this tech interest kind of on the side just because mm -hmm. of, you know, what you engaged in as a child. Um, and I'm there with you, you know, uh, I was always into tech as well. And so I, what I'm hearing is, is, you know, you sort of find this job because you have these skills that you can almost just step into, even though it's yep. a little bit unrelated from your anthropology degree. Yep. <laughs> and just out of curiosity, how did you feel about that at that time? Like, were you worried that you weren't using your degree or were you just excited to have a job or? No, I think I, at that point I had used my degree enough in small little ways that this kind of felt like the first opportunity for me to really use it, to get into a space where, yes, my job was to make websites, but I could also take the time and I had the support from uh, my boss was a librarian there, Sigrid Kelsey, to really take the time to learn and do research to make things better. And so it was a really great opportunity for me to practice those skills. Mm. And, and yeah, thanks for saying that. Let me reframe that though, because yeah. it, so not that you weren't using it, but more so that you weren't identifying, you know, right as, as an anthropologist. Did that give you any rub at that point? Yeah, well, there's always that, you know, you want to be the anthropologist and have the job title. But in reality, I had just accepted that those didn't exist, particularly at the time and in the area I was in. Um, and it, I just did a lot of... Um, like positioning myself when I was at meetings and things like that, saying like, hi, I'm an anthropologist. Also, I make our websites. And to kind of as like a way of introducing that knowledge so that I could keep reminding people that it wasn't just there to write HTML, but to help them really think about the human experience with these things. Yeah. So you get to practice all these skills, you know, that obviously we're well trained <laughs> for, you know, you're going beyond the code to really make, you know, usable experiences where um, you said then you wanted to go back, you know, right. Mm -hmm. And what, you know, what were you maybe hoping to really add to your toolkit? Um, you know, because not many people get a job that early on in the process. Mm -hmm. So what were you after having a full-time job really hoping to add on? Yeah. So originally when I wanted to go back for a PhD, it was because it was that 
this is what I always said it was going to do. And I think this is why my applications were not quite as strong as they should have been, is I really was thinking, ah, well, I have to go back and I have to finish anthropology, right? Um, but the after I worked longer in the field and I had that longer term job, it really became more of my own curiosity. I wanted to take the time to do the reading and to do the field work that I wasn't going to be able to do from within industry. Um, because at the time I thought that that would lead me back into industry and it would make me a better developer, a better designer, and a better consultant um, to have those experiences that I didn't have at the time. Because my master's degree, while I could see the relevancy, was sometimes difficult for other people to find. They're like, well, you spent all your time with Muslim women talking about identity. What does that have to do with websites? And so I thought if I could make a clear connection, it would be better. Um, but I didn't actually end up going back into industry. I ended up here at Texas State, um, primarily because it's a phenomenal program. Uh, and we have an applied anthropology PhD, which is one of very few in the country and in the world. And it felt like a really good fit for me to be able to balance doing applied work, things that um, create kind of tractable knowledge for others, while also helping other students get there to not have to go through this weird meandering path that I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're definitely going to dig into that program some more, but it, to continue on a little mm -hmm. bit further in your meandering path. So, you know, if you've been consulting from, from 2008, it also essentially means that you were in your PhD program and doing jobs on the side. And so, you know, I, you, I guess I had the question I'm going to ask is, is how did you balance that? You know, because obviously both can be a little labor, you know, a little, mm -hmm. little bit of an effort. It ended up actually working out really well. And I think I'm a pretty um, uncommon case that way. It started out, I was looking for a graduate assistantship because I, you know, as a PhD student, I was like, that's what I should be doing. Uh, and I got an offer for one, but it was so low compared to the amount of money I could make as a freelancer or uh, I ended up actually continuing part-time for a little while for the community college I had been working for full-time. Um, and I just, thought, okay, I'm just going to give this a go. I think I can make enough money to be sustainable to support my education. And so it really just became this balancing act, just as like, you know, if you're doing a TA ship, it's the same kind of thing, work your 20 hours and uh, try and sequester it there. Um, but the nice thing was that because I had that outside of the department um, experience, and I wasn't just entirely doing anthropology, that I was well, academic anthropology, I guess, I was able to stay connected and keep those skills up so that when I graduated, I could still say, yes, I'm still a web developer. I can still make contemporary technologies. I can still like look at branding initiatives and know what the current trends are and what um, you need to look at. Um, so it worked out actually pretty well. But I don't know if you were starting from scratch that that would be particularly easy to do. It only really worked out because I had that little brief career between my degrees. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, in that time, yes, you already had these skills that you could build on, but technology was drastically changing at that point. You know, iPhone mm -hmm. comes out 2008, right? Everything kind of gets turned on its head. So there's still <laughs> quite a bit of things you need to learn. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, maybe for you, it was just improving on the, you know, the foundation you had, but, you know, it, it changed pretty drastically from before that. And so how, what were you doing at that time 
to sort of stay up? What were you learning? You know, and and I'm where I'm going to go with that next is really to talk a little bit about the jobs you were involved in, mm-hmm. some of the tech work, some of the branding, and so just to to you know kind of get us there. Talk, talk to me a little bit about you know again sort of skill development in that period of your life. Sure. So I took on projects often that I thought I could get new skills from. So if I wanted to work on, um, for example, like WordPress came out with the Gutenberg editor and I knew I wanted to learn how to do that. I took on a contract to develop for it (laughs) and then uh, did the work for it. And so I kind of curated the projects I worked on and would pitch uh, to people specifically, like I wanna work on this skill so I can develop this thing for you that you may not have thought you needed. And that gave me the kind of paid time to be able to work on those skills, which I don't think I would have been able to if I didn't have that uh, ability. Um, But a lot of it is just, you know, keeping up with literature is not just reading academic anthropology, but staying in contact with industry and what the new standards are um, and that kind of thing. So the the pitching the job the way you did is kind of interesting, and I never heard somebody quite frame it that way. You know, oftentimes on the podcast, we've talked about the need to kind of build a portfolio any way possible. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's volunteering. <laughs> of course, if you can get paid, go for it. But in your case, if you're pitching a project for something you want to learn, were you then also sort of underselling the value, like to get it? Like, were you, you know, were you reducing the, the cost or? Yeah, a little bit. So I worked a lot with academic organizations and nonprofits. And so they already couldn't afford like your typical designer developer consultant. Um, And so I was able to move into that space and still charge a a rate that was, I felt was appropriate for me that I felt uh, recognized my value, but that I could make that space for kind of learning and pitching extra things because they had needs economically that they couldn't ask for more than that. And so they also tended to see it like, oh, now we're supporting you as well. And so it's kind of this nice give and take relationship. Yeah, nice suggestion. And since you were involved in branding, you know, were you doing anything in that space? Um, You know, not tech sort of skill development, but (laughs) more so in the design space? Yeah, so I've done, uh, for example, while I was at Binghamton doing my PhD, I did the branding for a neighborhood in upstate New York. Uh, it's called uh, North of Maine in, or Noma in Binghamton, New York. And it is this beautiful old historic district, but it had grown to have a terrible reputation. Uh, there was a lot of poverty and things like that. And the neighborhood could kind of band it together and got this really big grant to do a lot of community building initiatives. And one of the things they wanted to do was to motivate people to see themselves as a group in a community. And so they hired me to build a brand for them that they could use for their events and their programs and things like that to kind of get people excited about it. Got it. And so for somebody who, you know, especially considering, you know, now that you're teaching and teaching applied Mm -hmm. courses, I'm wondering if you have any suggestions here for what others might want to develop in terms of skills. If say they're in a graduate program, I mean, undergraduate or graduate program, and they they know that they want to practice in some sense, you know, what are you seeing right now as really valuable skills to develop? Really, I think it's the ability to learn skills independently. And I know that's kind of a little meta on your question, but really if you can take the times to learn how to develop skills 
quickly on your own, whether that is, I need to learn how to develop this thing if you're going on the web development path, or I need to learn how to speak UX language to someone who is in UX, then how you can go about learning those skills quickly and independently is really, really important because most of being an applied anthropologist is being on your toes and learning to speak the language of the people you're working with. And it's possible you could get really niche and be like, this is exactly what I do as an anthropologist. I only work with these types of projects and these types of people. And then you only really need to develop skills for that. Um, but I've found that often the people who ask for anthropologists are very diverse and they have diverse problems and they're diverse backgrounds. And so it's easier really to make yourself very flexible, to be able to learn quickly to walk into a room and learn what the organization is like, how people communicate um, and learn to use the tools they use. Yeah, agreed. It, it comes up time and time again on the podcast of sort of knowing your audience and, and learning the language. Um, and so I want to come back to like the concept of what you might, you know, recommend for students and more so I'm going to come back to it in the sort of frame of what you're doing to maybe teach this stuff. But we'll we'll, mm -hmm. we'll get there in time <laughs> to just stay on your career for a bit. So you go to Stockholm, you're looking at startup culture. So obviously that implies entrepreneurship, innovation. Uh, it doesn't have to be technology or information technology per se, I imagine, but um, nonetheless sort of designs involved in that, potentially, you know, engineering or even, you know. Um, so how, you know, when you get there and your project is sort of you know, turned on its head and you have to find a new client or maybe not a new client, but, you know, sort of, you know, have a new research question. That's always, you know, you're not the only one it happens to, but it's yep. a, it's a bit of a challenge. So aside from sort of looking around and identifying a new need, how did you really kind of go about that? Like what, <laughs> you know, what was your playbook for working your way through that? So the first thing I did was find all of the public events I could, and I showed up and I talked to people. Um, and that's, I mean, honestly, like the most important thing to do is to just start talking and networking is kind of those complicated words that gets associated with businessy people. Um, and some kind of uh, academic anthropologist can be a little allergic to it, but it it is actually quite useful. It's that kind of, you know, let me tell you my story and who I am and what I'm doing and you tell me yours and then let's exchange. Like, do you know people you think I should be talking to? Um, who do you think would be interested in this? What are the big questions of the day? And inserting yourself into those conversations. And that's really what I did is I just showed up and I talked. And eventually I started finding people who were interested in it as well. Um, I take a, a collaborative approach to ethnography. So for example, I built a um, web app to store all my data in, but then to also give access to anyone who I interviewed to see the data and see what I was doing uh, for analysis as I was doing it uh, and to get their feedback on it. And I ran some workshops and things like that with interlocutors to get their feedback. Um, but by aligning myself with the kind of things they also cared about, rather than coming in with a kind of esoteric academic idea that I wanted to prove or disprove, I really wanted to find out what was important to them and what anthropology could speak to. Um, and I think that's why I was successful working within the community and getting so many people on board, either to sit down for an interview or spend a whole year in conversation with me. Um, yeah. And so obviously, given the broad topic, I can see how it would relate back to your work. But did you have any concern that by 
you know, really trying to address their needs that it also maybe wouldn't serve you in the future, you know, or like was, you know, did it deviate from your initial path where like, you know, maybe it was less clear how you were going to bring that back and use it to your benefit or? No, not really. I think for me, the best anthropology is anthropology that does something for people. And if it, what matters to me is really if it's useful. Is it something that someone can read and feel something about or make a decision with? And if that's what it does, then that is good enough for me. So for my career, that's all I really wanted. I wanted to have research that could be impactful, although that's a word that's loaded these days. And actually it's going to be, I think, the focus of future research instead of innovation looking at impact. So, <laughs> but yeah, that's that's really what mattered to me. And it, it wasn't so much about, you know, I. I have this particular theory I need to explore. Um, it was more about me finding these are the questions and then going back to anthropology and theory and saying, how can I help these people understand it? What methods, what theory can help me navigate this space and make, you know, the strange familiar and the familiar strange or unpack really complex ideas that are difficult for people to sit with for any period of time. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't mind it at all having uh, shaped my work around what other people need. Because I really think that's what anthropology is best at. And so when looking at startup culture there, have you done any work in the States on startup culture, just like casually that you can compare and contrast or... So I, I did a very small amount in Western Michigan uh, while I was writing my dissertation. I got involved a little bit with the the West Michigan entrepreneurs, uh, mostly for me to just kind of see how weird was Sweden. <laughs> and it is weird in some ways compared to the American uh, experience, um, but a lot of it was the same. And now that I'm here in Texas, I'm going to be starting up work in Austin uh, because the Austin ecosystem is, is booming right now. Um, but unfortunately, with COVID, it has made it a little difficult to get in person and show up at networking events and talk to people. So we're, I'm a little delayed on that, but I'm excited to get it started. I'm going to be here for a while, so <laughs> be a good place and, to be. And so what were your big takeaways from the research in terms of, you know, startup culture and entrepreneurship? So the big thing I was looking at uh, or ended up looking at was the concept of innovation itself uh, because it was a word that got thrown around everywhere, but it did really big things. It made big decisions. It got lots of money behind it, you know, and it really drove a lot of people. So I wanted to unpack what that word means and what it means to different people and how it functions within the community. Um, so I ended up breaking it down into three general, really common meanings. Uh, one being innovation as invention, being the idea of inventing something new, that that is the innovation process. Uh, innovation is change, as in the idea that innovation is changing something in our social lives, is changing behaviors, changing infrastructures, um, changing the way we live and relate to each other. And then the last was innovation of promise, which was really the, the promise that entrepreneurship could take an invention and create change, kind of combining those two things. And that these three things happened, uh, were brought together and used interchangeably 
without any markation. And so while someone could sell you innovation is change, what they really wanted was invention, but then they could pretend it was the same, even though the stakes were very, very different. So an entrepreneur that wanted to go and solve climate change, for example, would sell to someone the idea of this change, but then really it's just an invention and never quite reaching that change that they anticipated. And the gap between those really affected how entrepreneurs navigated the community. And so I wanted to help them see how the decision points they made around that word um, would affect their trajectory and their ability to have the impacts they wanted. When you use the word change in this, you know, in this, uh, you know, in this scenario, I guess I'm wondering, you know, is there any value judgment placed on that type of change in the sense of like, does it always imply like positive change or just are people will willingly accepting that it's not always positive? Yeah, I would say that uh, innovation as change can be positive or negative. It's simply just change. And the idea that things change and that is innovation. But as we're talking about the promise of innovation, that's the where it starts getting value loaded, where it is about positive, like we're going to make better futures. But often it doesn't ask better for who or better in what ways. Uh, and it all kinds of gets folded in, like the idea that it's just going to happen. If we create this thing, something better is going to come from it. Um, and that rhetoric around innovation and all the things it obscures hides uh, what it is that's going to lead to that positive change, um, what decision points need to be made to get there. And how about as it relates to strategy? Because you know, strategy is a word that comes up often, mm. even you know, on this podcast, but certainly you know, throughout <laughs> business. Yeah. And you know, most people to me refer to it as, or what I generally hear, just you know, out in the broad kind of community. Um, you know, you generally look at people generally look at it as maybe like a series of decisions, you know, trade offs, mm -hmm. things of that nature. But to me, just given sort of my academic background, I've always come to it much more from the perspective of sort of sustainable competitive advantage, you know, that at least is going to provide, you know, some advantage for some period of time, obviously not forever, but, you know, for some you know, meaningful period of time, which probably is decreasing in length, you know, from what it used to be. But were any of, you know, any, the, the community that you were working with, did they any way relate this back to, you know, sort of sustainability? And I don't mean that in just in like sort of the environmental sense, but like mm -hmm. as an organization, as a, you know, human population. Yeah, there's a lot of a conversation around, particularly social entrepreneurship and the idea that, you know, we want to make these positive social changes in the world uh, and whether that was sustainable as a business practice or not. Um, you And there was a vast amount of opinions on this, as I'm sure you can imagine. So, like, I interviewed a venture capitalist who told me, you know, if you want to change the world, that's great, but only after you've made your billion dollars, <laughs> which is cynical. Then there are others who really just believed that if they just made all of the right decisions, if all their strategy was right, then they could make the change they wanted to see in the world. Um, but how to balance uh, that, I think, is complicated and it's different for every business. You know, some businesses kind of fall into that positive change they wanted to make. Um, like, for example, I, I worked with a company who 
uh, makes face masks, but they were making them for air pollution at the time that I was working with them because that's what they were very concerned about. They wanted to raise awareness around air pollution and they wanted to have help people uh, protect themselves with things that they'd want to wear. So they made really fashionable Swedish designed <laughs> masks, you know. But then uh, after I left the field, COVID happens and suddenly they are a health company now that they didn't anticipate being. And they had to pivot pretty drastically to adjust uh, their strategy. Um, and they could have just said, well, you know, people are buying them and we're making buco bucks, so we're good now. Uh, but they didn't. Instead, they took the time to say, well, we have these valves on the front of our masks that make them easier to breathe out of, but that doesn't work for coronavirus. That only provides one-way protection. That doesn't provide two-way. And so they created stoppers to plug up their valves and their product to fix that solution and actually serve the needs of the people they wanted to support. And so I think there are ways, like these little kinds of decision points where you make that choice between, I can just make a lot of money or I can make the right choice that is still sustainable as a business, but that impacts people in a much more positive way. So move kind of pivoting forward. So now you're you're in Texas. Yeah. You're you know, you're in this applied anthropology program at the PhD level, which um is relatively uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any others? Yes, there are other programs, uh, but I like to think that we're one of a kind in the way we're approaching it. Uh, so I, I feel like a lot of applied anthropology, um, whether it's at the PhD level or in general, is promoted as this stopgap of academic job market sucks. So here's we're going to train you so you can go get a job. And here we're really trying to take applied anthropology seriously as something that anthropology should be doing. Not that every anthropologist needs to, but that this really is what will bring the discipline forward. Uh, that we need to think about how our knowledge that we generate can be made actionable in communities. And so we're training our students to not just go and deliver the knowledge about what humans think or do or believe to a company, but to go out and think about how anthropological knowledge can be made actionable, whether that's through activism or working in industry or business, uh, working in medical anthropology. There's a lot of different venues. Um, but by focusing on that kind of actionable, tractable knowledge piece about how we can make impact in community. I think that's what really separates us is that we're not just training people to go out for jobs that exist, but to go out there and invent the space for anthropology that we think needs to be out there. So, of course, there are some core skills that, you know, don't change that, you know, core sort of theories, methods that aren't going to change that you need to teach. But there are a lot of other skills that mm -hmm. students will need to, you know, have a complete skill set to work in many jobs. Yeah. And so how do you go about filling that gap? Because, you know, mm -hmm. I did go to an applied anthropology program at the graduate level for a master's at UNT. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just wondering, you know, what what might the difference be between, say, a grad, you know, a master's level program and a PhD level program? Are you going to kind of mm -hmm. expand on what, say, they're trying to do? Uh, are there other, again, other skills that you're bringing into the program? 
So I'd say one of the things uh, for me personally that I want to do with our PhD students that's a little bit different is give them the space that I got in my PhD. Because I actually had a very generous advisor who was like, yeah, be applied. That's great. <laughs> uh, but to give them that space to come in and find their niche and develop those skills, give them the tools they need to do it somewhat independently. So rather than say, okay, you're gonna come into this program and I'm gonna teach you how to be a UX researcher and these are the steps. Rather, they come in and say, I want to do UX design or I want to do nonprofit organizational anthropology and give them the space and the tools to develop those skills and then as faculty support them in developing their own niche and their own kind of brand as an anthropologist, how they're going to go out into the workplace. And we support that also with uh, what we call them externships. Uh, it's a Texas State thing. They're really internships. So rather than doing the kind of traditional PhD program where you have a student going to um, Wenergren or NSF and getting a $30,000 grant to go spend a year in another country doing fieldwork. Uh, instead, they do internships in local businesses and nonprofits and government organizations to develop those skills in industry uh, in the areas that they're interested in. And then aside from that, we have a bunch of other great things on campus to support them if they're really interested in stuff. So we have like a usability lab on campus and we've got maker spaces and content creator stuff. So all kinds of fun tools for them here on campus to support them. And aside from the externships, are all of the classes also applied in nature in which there's some sort of maybe client project that they're working on? It depends. Uh, some classes are, some classes aren't. So we do teach like general theory courses and things like that. Um, I'm for right now teaching a design anthropology seminar course in which we are having conversations about um, what is design, how does design happen, but then also at the towards the end of the semester, learning the kinds of design research methodologies that are used in the field. Um, but then on the other side of that, we have things like a community research class, uh, like uh, Dr. Emily Brunson in my department has been taught this last fall, where they go out and do community research, kind of like a mini field school, but an applied setting. Um, so we have a kind of mix of those kind of applied skills, but also keeping them up on the literature. I think so often we like to think of applied anthropology as less rigorous or engaged with theory and things like that. But really the best applied anthropology is those that are informed by this huge body of knowledge we have as anthropologists. And so we want to keep them engaged in that and help them uh, translate that into things that uh, industry or whatever niche they want to work in will fit. And so, you know, of the, in the program, I guess, what do you, is there any focus at all? I mean, I know you said you kind of let students come in and they can sort of find their own path, but do you have like any core competencies based just upon faculty or? Yeah, so each of us kind of has our own strengths. Uh, I'm doing primarily business and design things, but I focus primarily on startups and tech startups uh, kind of industry. And we're hoping in the future to hire someone who's more of a corporate anthropologist. We have uh, someone who works in medical anthropology. We have uh, another faculty member who's doing social media who actually just got a great uh, grant from NSF to build a startup around her research, um, Dr. Uh, Nicole Taylor. Uh, so 
we've got that right now, but we're actually growing as a department. So we'll be hiring new faculty over the next uh, few years as some of our other faculty retire um, and build out those competencies. So we're kind of hoping that we can cover those like core areas that come up a lot within um, applied anthropology. Great. And, and maybe talk to me about the lab. I mean, it has a very interesting name. So I'd be curious to see is that you're doing. Was that already yes. on the books? <laughs> so uh, I am starting uh, this semester. Actually, we're doing a soft launch internally, the Innovative Anthropologies Lab. Uh, and really, I wanted to create a space for uh, collaboration and learning. Um, I think it is so important, particularly on these applied skills, to get people together to learn things and try them out and get on computers and play with Dreamweaver to learn how to do scripting and things like that. And so this lab, my goal is to uh, give students the tools they need to learn the skills they need for industry or nonprofit or whatever direction they tend to go, and then give them some kind of peer support network. So we're building in like event programs for workshops where if a student learns a skill, they can then hold a workshop to teach their peers about that skill or they can put in a knowledge base uh, for the rest of the community to be able to learn from that skill as well a little quicker than they may have had to do it on their own. Um, and then we're hoping over time to grow it to be a more external research network. Uh, so we want to have external events, uh, do some kind of collaborative workshops with our community partners, uh, and potentially as well we're thinking about in the future doing some contracting and having local organizations who want to hire teams of anthropologists hire our students and work with us uh, directly out of the lab. Good. Well, that sounds really exciting, especially the yeah. sort of contracting portions. Yeah. It's definitely unique. I am very um, excited for it. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, congrats on starting it. It sounds great. Um, it, what you just described about the external events also brings up something else that you're supporting, you know, and, and a little bit related to, which is the Applied Anthropology Network Apply Clubs. And I, I've had Laura on already. She yes. spoke about them. But you want to, just for anybody who maybe missed that episode, give a brief plug of what that's about? As I am part of the Apply Club for Innovation and Entrepreneurship uh, with... Uh, <coughs> uh, sorry, Applied Anthropology Network in EASA. It's a mouthful. Uh, but Laura and Marcus and I are running that Apply Club. But essentially the Apply Clubs are just kind of like small work groups that put on uh, public events for anyone who's interested in that particular area of applied anthropology. So there's uh, Apply Clubs for all kinds of different things like digital technology and that kind of thing. Um, and ours specifically is very new. We've only had one event so far, uh, but we're hoping to do a lot more um, to promote the anthropology of entrepreneurship and within entrepreneurship. Great. Well, I will uh, certainly link to that as well. Just uh, it's a great yeah. initiative. But I know Laura had great things, a lot more great things to say on her segment. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's uh, it's yeah, really well, her it's, baby. <laughs> yeah, it's her baby, but uh, good to give it another plug. So, of course, but yes. one of the other things you're involved in, which my, you know, my guess is. Um, it, you know, I'm not sure the the visibility that this initiative mm -hmm. has, but the Committee for the Anthropology of Science, Technology, mm -hmm. and Computing, which itself is also a mouthful, yes. um, <laughs> you know, seems like a little bit more of kind of one of the buried maybe subgroups of AAA, of which there's many sort of subgroups that are, you know, not as 
as big in recognition as some others. Um, so for anybody who hasn't heard of that, you mm-hmm. mind also giving a sort of little blurb on that? Yeah, so Castec has uh, really pro- been my academic home for a long time. Uh, I joined them in 2013 as a junior web producer, and then eventually the year after took over as web producer and just kind of stayed there because I uh, manage all of our web tech. Um, and so I've been lucky enough to stay in the leadership all this time and get to see all the lovely people that come through. Um, but essentially, CASTAC is a organization under the General Anthropology Division of the AAA. And we have, depending on how you count them, around three to 400 members uh, who are on our listserv and uh, come to our events. We do like an invited lecture every year at the AAAs. Um, but really, the main thing we do is we have this fantastic blog called Platypus. Uh, we have a team of excellent uh, contributing editors uh, run by uh, Svetlana Borodina, who's our current editor. And they go out and they curate these posts on anything science and technology and anthropology related. And so that runs the gamut from highly academic theoretical work to very deeply applied industry work. And so there's a lot of great stuff on there. Um, But one of the things I really like about the community is we've done a lot to be much more inclusive. Um, One on one side to bring in those applied folks, because if we're gonna do science and technology studies, There's so many of them out there and they're doing fantastic work that we wanna hear about and bring them into the conversation. But we've also done a lot to internationalize. So we offer blog posts in English and another language, depending on the author uh, and where they think their work will speak to. Uh, And we're now starting out with uh, audio versions. So if you don't have time to read a blog, you can come listen. Um, But it's a really great community of scholars and applied folks who are um, really digging into some of the most important issues in science and technology right now. Yeah, no, it's a great blog and uh, fun <laughs> logo as well. Did you make the logo? Yeah, well, a bit. <laughs> there was a logo that had been stolen of a platypus. <laughs> I think it. I think maybe it was a Creative Commons or public domain something ages ago. Um, but I ended up doing the uh, the not the rest, the vector version that's on the website now. Cool. Yeah, it's a great <laughs> site. Uh, nice job with it. So. <laughs> Obviously, you're up to a lot of things. Is there anything else that you're involved in that I'm not aware of or didn't mention that you think would be worth bringing up to everybody who listens? Oh, God, I'm sure there's something and someone somewhere is going to say like, oh, you didn't mention our collaboration. But I think those are the big highlights. (laughs) Great. Um, Well, good luck with the program. Definitely, you know, uh, would love to hear about it in the future. And if anybody was interested in the program or just getting in touch with you, where should they find you? Uh, TexasState.edu slash anthropology is for the department. It's a great place there. But I'm at uh, A-K-V-B-R-O-E-K at just about everything. LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever. (laughs) Um, Great. Well, Angela, thanks. I appreciate you taking the time. It was great chatting with you. Thanks for having me on. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me, where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.